Well, it's a delightful uh, opportunity that we have and share together to open the Word of God and to study. And um, we turn our attention once again to um, the book of Ecclesiastes, our uh, latest adventure. And uh, we're off to a great start last time answering the question, why should we study this book? If you weren't with us last time, you can find that recorded on Sermon Audio, and uh, it's the first half of our introduction. Uh, We're now looking at the second half. Um, Maybe I didn't need to convince most of you that we should study the book of Ecclesiastes, but just in case there was some hesitancy, uh, hopefully I have convinced you. Now, our introduction would not be complete, of course, without a word to its author, recipient, the date of writing, place of writing, its canonicity, and I would also argue, uh, add to that rather, its genre. So we need, to do, we need to address all of those. I mean, every study of a book, you need to address those, and uh, sometimes that is more informative than practical, but we'll do our best to to make it uh, more of the other, more of one than the other, I should say. But before that, before that, I want to plant a phrase in your mind that will help you to see better the practical side of Ecclesiastes. And that phrase is vantage point. Vantage point. Let me illustrate this with a children's story, if I may. Hans Christian Andersen wrote a number of them, uh, one of which is called The Emperor's New Clothes. (laughs) The plot is clever. I see most of you remember that one. Um, Very clever. The emperor needed new clothes for an event, a particular social event. Money was no object. So he wound up hiring two swindlers who passed themselves off as weavers, and they promised to create the most magnificent uh, clothes for the, for the emperor. As they explained, these clothes would also be very special because they would be invisible to anyone who was a fool. Well, enough said. So they set up the looms, they went to work, And uh, the king and his officials would periodically come by just to check on them, making sure everything was okay. Of course, they saw empty looms. Um, But they pretended to see cloth there in order to avoid being labeled a fool. The day came when the weavers finished and they dressed the king, miming the movements. The king then marched naked in a procession before the whole town that, as you might imagine, went along with the pretense. No one wanted to be labeled a fool. The voice of reason comes from a child who in innocence blurts out, the emperor doesn't have anything on. Each person then realized that everyone has been a fool. Now, whatever you think the moral of that story is, one thing is for sure. People will misinterpret the truth if they don't see it from the correct vantage point. One faulty vantage point, for example, in this story, is the fear of man. 
And it manifests in a number of ways here. For example, no one wanted to be perceived by others as a fool. Or, number two, no one wanted to go against the status quo, which in this case is really the minority, but no one knew that. Or number three, no one wanted to disagree with the emperor, which is essentially tantamount to calling him a fool. Another faulty vantage point in this story is love of self, perhaps best portrayed by the emperor, who after realizing what really was going on, would rather continue to march on proudly than admit his own gullibility. It's no wonder that the title of the story has become an idiom in our time for, according to the Free Dictionary, quote, something widely accepted as true or professed as being praiseworthy due to an unwillingness of the general population to criticize it or be seen as going against popular opinion, end quote. Hmm. Now you might be thinking, but the townspeople saw the reality. They were just afraid to say anything. Not so fast. In the first place, what, what they think about themselves, that they are not stupid, overrides reality in this case, right? They honestly believed that there were clothes that everyone else could see but them. So they go along with it. They didn't realize that everybody saw no clothes until the child spoke and everybody started laughing. In the second place, denying reality, listen very carefully, denying reality because of selfish motives is still a practical misunderstanding of reality. In other words, those who would live life by denying facts and trusting their feelings are really fools. Now, Ecclesiastes would agree. And, as I hope to show you, Ecclesiastes shows us the perfect way forward. But first, to those details. We talk about the author. Up until the latter part of the 19th century, most commentators, including the ancient ones, all believed that Solomon is the author of this fine work. Now, what led them to that conclusion? Well, a combination of facts. Uh, they all come out of uh, chapter 1, or most of them, chapter 1. In verse 1, verse 1 attributes the words, words of the wise teacher to the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then he himself was also king in Jerusalem, according to verse 12. And in verse 16, the son of David, who was king of Jerusalem, boasts this, I magnified and increased in wisdom more than all who ruled over Jerusalem before me. Who else but Solomon could fit this description? He was the son of David. He was king in Jerusalem. He was the wisest man who ever lived. But again, not so fast. On closer examination, there are some discrepancies here that are hard to clear up. The text says that the wise teacher, the son of David, was king in Jerusalem. That is what it says in the Hebrew text. It implies that his reign had ended before he picked up his pen to write this work. But according to the biblical record, Solomon died during his reign. There was never a time when he wasn't a king once he was coronated. 
1 Kings 11.42 says, So the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem all over Israel was 40 years. Verse 43, Then Solomon laid down with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David, and his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. Also, verse 16 states that Solomon was wiser than all who ruled in Jerusalem before him, implying that there were many before him who ruled in Jerusalem. But again, the biblical record is clear that no one but David ruled Jerusalem, the Lord having rejected Saul even before his coronation. Furthermore, the writer criticizes the injustices of the king's reign in the body of the book, which seems odd if Solomon were the one speaking. He'd be criticizing his own reign. After chapter 2, the, the writer distances himself from this kingly figure, writing more from the perspective of topics rather than a king. And finally, logically speaking, there would be no need to shroud Solomon's identity in mystery if Solomon was meant, and especially when the mention of his name would put the book beyond dispute. There'd be no question. Why not just simply say Solomon if Solomon was? The author would clear up so many things. We find at the beginning of Proverbs, for example, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. No question that Solomon was one of the contributors to the book of Proverbs. And at the start of Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Again, no question there. But Ecclesiastes makes no mention of Solomon, none whatsoever, and the details don't square with Solomon's life. There has to be a better explanation. Now, there are many explanations. Most of them are not good. The better explanations are variations on what I would consider to be the best explanation. So let me present to you the best explanation, as far as I'm concerned, and forego the many hybrids. Simply put, the writer of Ecclesiastes teaches, uh, teaches inspired wisdom as a Solomon-like figure. He adopts the persona of Solomon. He presents himself as an equal to Solomon without claiming to be Solomon. Now, you may not know that there is a literary device used in the ancient world by these writers in their writings when presenting their point of view. They put their words in the mouth of a fictitious person. For Ecclesiastes, that was a Solomon-like figure. Those then reading this would know instantly that Solomon was not the writer uh, for the same reasons we mentioned. They would understand this person to be a wise sage giving God's wisdom, period. Now, in case you find this explanation somewhat odd, it might help to know that modern authors use the same literary device. I wonder if you knew that. For example, uh, most here are old enough to remember the production, The Song of the South. Remember The Song of the South? zippity doo da. Yes where the narrator gives his pearls of wisdom to a young boy through a fictitious character named Uncle Remus. It's 
my favorite. There's also the famous Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, where Mark Twain speaks through the character of Huck Finn, who also becomes, by the way, the narrator of his own adventures and speaks in the first person. Now, the sage of Ecclesiastes creates a fictitious figure called Koheleth, like Uncle Remus and Huck Finn, as the ideal embodiment of wisdom in order to represent himself. He wasn't pretending to be Solomon, but rather adopting the persona of Solomon and calling that persona Koheleth. He even speaks in the third person about himself, as if, as if to say, oh, there is a wise teacher, a teacher of wisdom, the best that Israel ever produced. Then in chapter 1, verse 12, he begins speaking as this character in the first person, I, the preacher, and carries on that way right to the end, chapter 12, verse 8. Why switch back and forth from third person to first person? Well, because in the third person, he modestly claims that his sayings are upright and true and reliable. Remember in the Gospel of John, John refers to himself, the writer, simply as the one whom Jesus loved. Do you remember that? Well, Ecclesiastes, the writer here, can say that his teaching is authoritative by giving authority to his fictitious figure. For those younger generations, you might think of Koheleth as the sage's avatar, who is the wisest there is. And for those of you who are in the older generations and know nothing about gaming or an avatar, an avatar is an icon. It is a figure that represents the particular person playing the game. Uh, many scholars who realize the anonymity of the writer will simply refer to him by his Hebrew name or title, Koheleth, which is the way that the sage refers to himself. So what does that mean, anyway? Well, it's most certainly a title or an office. It is not a personal name. The literal meaning is one who assembles others. That's what it means. But because the root word occurs in the Old Testament many times with the idea of assembling people for worship, and because its noun form also means congregation, as in Psalm 26.12, where David says, in the congregations I will bless the Lord, the creators of the Septuagint understood it to have the more specific meaning, one who assembles the saints in worship to give them God's word, or the preacher. That's what the Greek word ecclesiastes means. The preacher related to the word ecclesia, the assembly. Ah, yes, you see, the light bulbs are going off. There's no doubt that pastors certainly bring the word of God into the lives of the saints to minister to them by means of preaching, but there's no proof in Ecclesiastes that the writer was actually teaching a congregation. It's fair to say that he was certainly a sage, and we can be more specific than this, I think. Um, that brings us to the recipient of the book. The recipient, in chapter 12, verse 12, the sage is clearly addressing his son. It says, beyond this, my son, be warned. 
We find this father-son paradigm, by the way, all throughout the book of Proverbs as well. Was this recipient the literal son of the sage? Well, we know that in the Old Testament, son can at times refer to one's immediate biological son, as in the case of Solomon, who was David's son, or to a distant descendant, as in the case of Jesus, who was also David's son. I would say that there's no good reason to doubt that the sage is talking to his own biological son. That's the plain reading of the text. The sage was a father who was instructing his son how to meet the absurdities of life from a biblical vantage point. There's that phrase. Having said that, I believe that there is a fuller meaning to son in the book since it's in the canon and the sage would expect his work to to benefit the future people of God, son may also refer to any reader that the sage anticipates will read his work. We actually use the term son much in the same way today, as in the case where an older man may um, call a younger adult of no relation son when he's imparting some words of wisdom to the young man, right? The elder man takes on a pastoral, counseling, teaching role when he refers to the young man as son. Now, what about the date of this particular writing? The Hebrew Hebrew used in Ecclesiastes corresponds best with the Hebrew of the post-exilic period. I really don't have time to go into all of that. It's rather technical anyway. But the date of the post-exilic period that time when Israel came back out of exile to rebuild her temple and the walls of Jerusalem, it's from 537 B.C. to 430 B.C. That's the period of time. In fact, Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, was written in 430 B.C. After that, another period begins that scholars, New Testament, Old Testament scholars, call the intertestamental period. And that's from 430 all the way to the birth of Christ, approximately uh, uh, 6 or 4 B.C. So Ecclesiastes was written roughly around the 4th century B.C., rather late. What about geographical location? Can Can we know where the book was written? Actually, it's nearly impossible to determine that. But it really is a moot point, since the location has no bearing on the understanding of the book especially since the book is about life experiences in many different contexts. There are really two more areas that I would like to emphasize in this introduction, and one is that we are reading a work of biblical inspiration. Ecclesiastes is divinely inspired. Let's talk about that. We've done the author, we've done the recipients, we've done the date, geographical location, or provenience, as it's technically called. But let's talk about the nature of Ecclesiastes. I would like to, I would like to say that Ecclesiastes is divinely inspired. It's an inspired text. It's part of the canon of Scripture. There was never any question of this, even in the minds of the ancient Israelites. And Though it's not quoted in the New Testament, 
Some actually wonder whether Paul had Ecclesiastes in mind when in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, he describes creation as being subject to futility. Do you remember that? That is the key word, of course, in the Septuagint version of Ecclesiastes, vanity. I might even go so far as to say that the writer himself believed his own composition to be inspired. I love this part. Uh, This is rather interesting. People don't usually think about this. That might sound strange, but several biblical writers in the Bible believed their own writings to be the very word of God. Moses certainly did. The prophets, obviously. And in 2 Samuel 23, David acknowledges his psalms as inspired writing. In verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me, and his words were on my tongue. In the New Testament, Paul knew his epistles were the very word of God, declaring in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 to 5, that his writing revealed what in other generations were not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed in his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. That's Paul. Paul told Timothy Timothy to preach his teaching. 1 Timothy 4.11, and Titus to do the same with authority, Titus 2.15. He based his authority and even the veracity of his gospel on his apostleship in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. And he writes to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Peter actually refers to Paul's writings in his second epistle as scripture, 2 Peter 3.16. And since we're mentioning Peter, Peter also claimed in the same epistle, verses 1 and 2, that his own writing was inspired. You should remember the words spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Word of God by your apostles. The angel that appeared to John in Revelation 22 put John in the same category as the Old Testament prophets. In verse 9, John himself concludes in verse 18 of Revelation 22, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Now I believe that the sage of Ecclesiastes saw his own writings as the words of God himself. I'll prove this to you. I'll prove this to you. In chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, verse 10 we read this, the preacher sought to find delightful words and to write true, uh, words of truth correctly. So he endeavored to find words that were not only delightful, um, that is, delighting the heart, desirable words of wisdom, but to arrange his words of truth in just the right way for his purposes. So far, so good. These words that came from his own heart to capture life as it truly is both under the sun and above the sun, he ascribes to God in verse 11. 
He says, the words of the wise are like goads. The masters of these collections are like driven nails. They are given by one shepherd, capital S. This truth from the sage will pierce our hearts. It'll make us uncomfortable in a good way, pricking our conscience to bring about godliness. And he continues, they are given by one shepherd. His words are really wisdom from God. Now that means that we, shouldn't, we should not only listen to these words, but we should trust them to be sufficient, as verse 12 declares. Verse 12, but beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive study is weary to the body. Yes. How does this verse speak to the sufficiency of God's word in Ecclesiastes? Well, his reference to this, beyond this, refers back to his own work that he's just written, Ecclesiastes. So he says, beyond Ecclesiastes, be warned. He has just described in positive terms God's word in verses 10 and 11. The warning is not to go beyond them, these delightful and pleasing words that he arranged this truth that he arranged, just so. Nothing more is needed for godliness. These are sufficient. We don't need, in other words, to search outside of God's inspired canon of Scripture in human works for, for commentary on reality or how to live life. To do so isn't only an endless and wearisome exercise, it's an exercise in futility. When God has given us his word, that's all we need. There's no need to add to God's word and God's inspired writing with human writings. So here, I would submit to you, is where the writer claims that his own work is inspired, which, by the way, is also a confirmation of its canonicity. You must be prepared, beloved, from this point on, to submit to the principles in Ecclesiastes as we encounter them. Now, the last thing, the second, the second and last thing that I want to rehearse with you about Ecclesiastes is the fact that it is wisdom literature. This is its genre. Its genre. What is genre, anyway? Well, in, he in Hebrews 11.1, uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, rather. The writer tells us that God spoke to his people in various ways during the time he superintended the composition of the Old Testament. And those ways produced a variety of literary forms. For example, he spoke to Moses face to face, as it says in Numbers 12, 28, openly and did not use mysterious language to give people law his law. That way he spoke to them produced legal literature. So we have legal literature in the Old Testament. It's a particular genre, a type, a kind of literature. God spoke to the prophets in symbolic dreams and visions which produced prophetic literature. We also noted already that God spoke through David, Israel's sweet singer of psalms, and this produced one of the most popular and beloved genres of literature in the Bible, hymnic literature. 
Well, Ecclesiastes belongs to what is called wisdom literature. God spoke through Israel's wise men as they made keen observations and reflections of their world with an informed and mature faith in Israel's covenant-keeping God. Wisdom literature. Proverbs 24 shows us how the sage did this. It's very interesting. Let me just give you a, we'll, we'll do a dry run. This is, how, this is how they did it, the sages. Verses 30 and 31, Proverbs 24, tells us that his laboratory is the sluggard's field. That's his laboratory. He says, I pass by the field of a lazy one and by the vineyard of a person lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with weeds. Its surface was covered with weeds, and its stone wall was broken down. Now that's the laboratory. That's where he does his observation. Verse 33 tells us that the sage then applies his powers of observation. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction. And then in verse 34, the sage coins or cites a proverb. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, then your poverty will become like a drifter and your need like an armed man. So we find wisdom literature really in a lot of places. It's in some of the Psalms. It's in bits and pieces throughout the Old Testament. But the entire books of Job, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are what are called wisdom books. Job presents wisdom in straightforward dialogue fashion, remember. Proverbs presents it in short maxims. Raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Ecclesiastes presents wisdom through the musing of a wise man over the issues of life. Now, I want to wind down our time today with five characteristics of wisdom literature that creates for us the divine, godly vantage point that we need to interpret life. Vantage point. I'm coming back to that. Here's what makes up this vantage point. These are characteristics of wisdom literature. There are others, but these are the weightiest. All right? Number one, it provides us with the right epistemology the right epistemology. I brought up epistemology last time. It simply means how you know what you know to be true. And people who are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ will always have a wrong epistemology. That's to say their foundation for knowing truth, for determining what is morally good and right and wrong is something other than Scripture. It might be right, a religious dogma, for example. Well, I know what I know to be true because my priest told me, or Watchtower tells me, or the Kingdom Hall tells me, or the Bhagavad Gita tells me, or the Quran. Currently, an epistemology of feelings is most popular in America. My feelings tell me how I know what I know is morally right. Feelings today win out over historical, scientific, and biological facts as they did for the subjects in the emperor's new clothes. It makes no difference what the data say. 
It's all about how you feel. You see? The decade of the 70s was a lot like this. The motto then was, if it feels good, do it. It's adjusted a bit today. If it feels good, it's true. Yes. Epistemology. So one of the important points that we learn from Ecclesiastes is how to think about and view life under the sun with a correct epistemology, with a biblical epistemology. And that simply means that Scripture alone must inform my conscience and my brain. What is right is what God says is right in his word, and we proceed from there. Number two, wisdom literature provides us with the right object to fear. Right object to fear. Fear in this context is not a negative thing. It has to do with whose opinion I regard as most valuable. If I fear man then I will allow people's perceptions of me to rule me, plain and simple. And in a society whose motto is, if it feels good, it's right, we're not surprised that people obey what they fear. Biblical wisdom literature says, fear God the most. How is the fear of God linked to wise living? Because that's what Ecclesiastes does. It links the two. That's what wisdom literature does. Well, let me answer that question by working backward from wise living. Are you ready? Wise living comes from applying God's truth. We cannot apply God's truth unless we know it. We cannot know God's truth unless we have it. And we cannot possess God's truth unless God reveals it to us. And God reveals his truth only to those who have a relationship with him or said another way, who fear him. Fearing God in the Old Testament, it's an expression that captures a right and intimate relationship with God. It's very full. This is why Israel's wisdom uniquely lays down the fear of the Lord as the foundation for acquiring wisdom. If you have a relationship with God, If you fear the Lord, regard him more than anyone, then you will regard his word above anyone else's and you'll live by it. Job 28, verse 28. And to mankind he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And turn away from evil, that is understanding. Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Ecclesiastes 12.13, the conclusion when everything has been heard is this, fear God and keep his commandments. Fear, you see, is part of the language of worship, along with crave, desire, want, thirst, long for, love. Oh, yes. You're you're going to obey the one you fear most, the one you regard most. It's as simple as that. People are directed by their fears, and if you fear God the most, you will take to heart his scripture. Number three, the uh, uh, wisdom literature presents God as the most reliable, the most reliable. It calls for trusting the Lord instead of oneself. Take Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, well-known passage. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Wonderful bit of Hebrew poetry. Sadly, the church has been so lax in its Bible doctrine that the simple phrase like trust in the Lord needs to be clarified. It's it's not complicated. When we trust something, we find it reliable. And in the second half of verse 5, the sage elaborates on trust by saying, lean. So trust and lean are synonymous in this case. Lean on the Lord, not on your own understanding. That's trust. You might tell someone that you trust implicitly, hey, I'm relying on you. And that would make sense. If we're relying on God, it means that we expect him to do what he says in his word and as our covenant God. It also means that what he tells us to do is always the best possible option in any situation. And what he tells us is found nowhere else than in the Bible. Number four, wisdom literature provides us with the correct frame of reference. Oh, the correct frame of reference. It is true that wisdom literature establishes truth for life from the sage's observations of creation and his experiences, yes. But, we must add, within the frame of reference of a biblical worldview. That's the important part. You see, anyone can make observations about life. Psychologists do that all the time. But how we interpret those observations makes all the difference in the world. How you establish morality from a particular observation. For example, Without that frame of reference, that biblical worldview, the created order would simply teach the survival of the fittest, which is really wickedness, not righteousness. We don't want to live by that. Is that a right observation? Yes. But it needs to be interpreted. Solomon Solomon had the benefit of an informed faith and his wisdom Uh, allowed him to interpret life correctly. What makes wisdom literature in general, and particularly in Ecclesiastes, so unique and so different from wisdom literature of pagan cultures? Well, it's that its observations about everything under the sun are processed through a biblical worldview. That's what. A biblical theological grid, a strong view of God's covenants and sovereign will. The whole package. See, this is why it's so important to know doctrine. The sage has a biblical lens. It's a lens of Israel's world and life view. He never takes it off when observing and reflecting on creation and his experiences or writing about it. Never. Well, on few occasions, he will take his lens off for teaching purposes only. In order to contrast biblical worldview with the chaos of a fallen world, as we see in Ecclesiastes, but he he doesn't keep it off for very long because his observations are too troubling 
Oh, yes. As Asaph found, and he records for us in Psalm 73, he says, verses 2 and 3, My feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Yikes. That's a bad place for a believer to be. Took his lens off. In a world where God's sovereign goodness and will is not factored in, evildoers who triumph over the righteous, it makes no sense. It's absurd. It's absurd to anyone and gives great cause for despair. It led Asaph himself to the wrong conclusion. Here's his conclusion, verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Verse 22, my heart was embittered and I was pierced within. Then I was stupid and ignorant. I was like an animal. That's the conclusion. Yikes. He needed to put the biblical worldview lens back on and he does, finally, in verses 17 and 18. When I entered the sanctuary of God, then I perceived what was really happening. The right lens, the right vantage point. Christians have a biblical worldview, a frame of reference from which to assess and evaluate life under the sun, and we'll see it clearly developed in Ecclesiastes. I'm very excited. Fifth and finally, wisdom literature provides the norm for thinking and living. The norm. I love that word. Biblical wisdom literature is part of the canon of Scripture. The word canon comes from the Greek word for reed. A reed. You know the one that blows in the wind? Well, the reed is what the ancients used as a measuring rod, like a yardstick. Out of that literal use came the idea that canon had to do with the rule of life for godliness, the standard the norm. You might say it contains the standard for living and thinking and worshiping, really for living life to the fullest. It is the norm for life and godliness. There's no other place where you can find the norm for thinking and living, which is why both Old and New Testaments were so adamant about not adding to it or subtracting from it. Augur explains in Proverbs 30, as he writes that chapter, that creation teaches the impossibility of attaining wisdom apart from special revelation. And then he warns in verse 6, do not add to the word of God or he will rebuke you and you will be proved a liar. Wisdom literature epitomizes God's norm for godliness. It's right there. It tells us how the Bible is unique and better than any of the other body of information for morality and spirituality, Israel's wise men would never think to resort to pagan wisdom to interpret their world. They would never, they, they would, they, they, they never went to pagan literature uh, to, 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 to interpret righteousness 
no matter how popular or how attractive pagan thought might have been at the time. Biblical wisdom literature does not attempt to shape Israel into the image of their pagan environment. Just the opposite. Its goal is to shape God's people into the image of God himself within their environment. In conclusion, I want to say that our scripture reading this morning, 2 Timothy 3, verses 13 to 17, where you heard Paul's prophetic word about evil people and imposters, those, of course, who play Christian and are deeply embedded in the church, they will go from bad to worse. That's Paul's words, not mine. They will go from bad to worse in the end times. The deception will increase inside the church as well as outside, and that's happening already today. What hope is there for well-meaning Christians who want to stay the course, remain strong and immovable, and not be taken in and misled by the redefinitions out there of what is right and good and wholesome and kind and moral and healthy, of being coerced by a powerful minority into accepting a worldview and a reality which is fantasy. The world and apostate Christianity both dwell in their own versions of fantasy. Paul tells us, continue in what you have learned and have seen and been convinced of from what God has revealed to us in the sacred writings. Scripture. He says that Scripture only is able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation that is beneficial for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness, and which can make us capable and equipped for every good work. Every. And our God and Father, we are grateful for your goodness to us, for giving us this, this book which to many seems so out of place with what we experience as godliness and righteousness, yet we, we can see how the writer presents life from two vantage points, one without God and the other with him. We pray then, Lord, that as we take up our Bibles to study this very important book, that we will we will embrace a biblical worldview, this vantage point, <clears throat> even though it is becoming increasingly more unpopular and difficult to do so in our, our ever morally declining society. Father, we pray that we would be the soldiers that you have called us to be, that we would stand the, stay the course, stand firm, and that we would be prepared to to see your wisdom and how it may be applied to our lives. And we will thank you in advance for doing this for us, but mainly for your glory and for the benefit of your church. In Christ's name we pray, amen.